All right, good morning. Let me pray quickly before we start. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and these people. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would dwell among us by your spirit and that you would shape us to be your resurrection people in this world. Amen. And thank you very much to all of you who have been praying for us, prayed for us now. I know that I've, I've, heard, I've heard from many of you that you guys have us in your prayers, and we sincerely appreciate that. <clears throat> Gordon Fee, biblical scholar, um, tells a story about how at one point he was asked by a student in the Regent Atrium what he would do or what he would emphasize were he to go back into pastoral ministry again. And he says that he immediately answered the student, no matter how long it might take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an eschatological community. Eschatological and eschatology are the kind of unfortunate technical jargon that make people's eyes glaze over as you bring them up in normal conversation. And it's unfortunate because they're really important concepts, and I'll be talking about them quite a bit over these next few months. And so because of that, I wanted to help to explain and define them in hopes of making them sound less intimidating, in hopes of kind of adding them to our common vocabulary so that we can sound like a bunch of theology nerds. So eschaton or eschatology or eschatological, all of those come from the same Greek word eschatos, which means last. So applied to time, this refers to the last day or the last days, what we'd sometimes call the end times. If eschatos means last, then eschatology is therefore the study of last things. The eschaton is, is the coming or the last age. So in the Old Testament, the phrase, the last days, sometimes it just seems to mean like just some time in the future. And while there are different views on this, it's been argued that they nonetheless, it always contains this sense of, of the, the end of the current age, this new age that's coming, at the very least from the perspective of the speaker or the writer. And then from the time of the Old Testament all the way to the time of the new, a set of expectations develop about what this new age, what this coming age would look like. And so today we're going to talk about some of those expectations. We're also going to talk about the great um, rupture of those expectations, the surprise ending, as Dave put it, that came with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there you go, kiddos. And you guys would have to hear his sermon from a few weeks back to get that joke. But anyway, this surprise ending, this rupture of expectations came with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that required people like Paul to rework their eschatology, their understanding of the age to come as a result of what had happened there. So we are currently in the church year in the season of Eastertide, which is the great 50-day feast that follows Easter. Um, did you guys know that there was a 
big 50 day uh, fellowship committee is they're like the 50 day feast planned. Um, I did not get an invitation to a 50 day feast. Um, so I, I once heard a talk by N.T. Wright, and he said that there, there's something wrong with the way that we do Easter. Um, he's an Anglican, and he described all the sorts of things that his tradition would do, you know, all, all leading up to Easter. And it's a lot of the similar stuff to what we do. There's, there's Ash Wednesday. There's Lenten fasts. There's Palm Sunday with the palm branches and everything. Um, some traditions sing box passions. There are Passover meals sometimes. We had a, have a Maundy Thursday service here. There are Good Friday walks. All that kind of stuff. And so Wright goes on to say, I don't know how you do it here, but in my tradition today, alas, after 40 days of Lenten fasts and three days of deep and serious concentration on the meaning of the cross, we have precisely one morning of Easter festivities. And then people disappear, exhausted by the rigors of Holy Week. The clergy go on holiday, and the only celebration that is left is eating up the remains of the chocolate Easter eggs. So this talk was the first time that I'd ever heard of Easter as a 40-day feast or a 50-day feast. And so he goes on, he says, no, we should make Easter a 40-day celebration. If Lent is that long, Easter should be at least that long. All the way to Ascension. We should meet regularly for Easter parties. We should drink champagne at breakfast. We should renew baptismal vows with, vows with splashing water all over the place. And we should sing and dance and blow trumpets and put out banners in the streets. And we should invite the homeless people to parties. And we should go around town doing random acts of generosity and celebration. We should be doing things which, make, which would make our sober and serious neighbors say, what is the meaning of this outrageous party? So I'm going to up the ante a little bit and say that we should just go for the whole 50 days, not just the 40 to ascension. You see, Easter died, Eastertide is 50 days long because it goes from Easter, the 40 days to ascension, and then another 10 to Pentecost. So what does Eastertide, this 50-day feast, have to do with eschatology? Well, again, Eastertide is bounded by resurrection at Easter, on one hand, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, on the other. As, um, and, and both of those things, resurrection and Spirit, were major characteristics of the age to come. As biblical scholar William Manson put it, the supreme sign of the eschaton is the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the church. Okay, so Eastertide from Easter to Pentecost is an eschatological celebration. I've titled this entire sermon series for the next few months, um, Resurrection People. And we're going to be working through a central chunk of the letter of 2 Corinthians. And I thought this would be a great fit for Eastertide, since there are eschatological new creation themes woven all throughout this letter. And the entire letter itself is framed by death and resurrection. If we look at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, Paul writes, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So that's at the very beginning of the letter. At the very end of the letter, Paul says, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, and yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. So Paul understands himself and his readers to be deeply shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It informs everything that he says in this letter. So having been joined to Christ in his death and his resurrection, having received the spirit who was poured out at Pentecost, Paul and the church at Corinth and the church at Jericho are resurrection people. We are an eschatological people because we belong to the coming age that has been ushered in to the present by the resurrection of Jesus. We are from the future. So let's look at what this means in a bit more detail. Um, Jewish understanding of history split it into two ages. Okay, between between the Old Testament and the New, these were referred to as the Olam Hazed, this age, and the Olam Haba, the age to come. The, um, in, in the Old Testament itself, the most direct terminology used to refer to the age to come was the phrase, in the last days. It's that eschatological language, eschatos, in, in, translated into Greek, and has eschatis hemeris, eschatos, last, all right? related to eschatology, eschaton, the last days. And so we had Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, read in our call to worship this morning. And that's a good example of eschatological expectation. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, it said. And it continued on. So there were a number of the expectations about this age to come and what it would look like, and, and that passage in Isaiah has, has a number of them. But I have a list here of a number of others, which if you were to look at a, a large number of eschatological texts in the Old Testament and other intertestamental literature, you see these are the themes that emerge. These are the characteristics that will, will, will be true of the age to come in, in, in the future as God brings it about. There would be forgiveness of sins. There would be return from exile and a new exodus. Those things were very tightly interwoven in Jewish understanding of, of the age to come. There would be the great day of the Lord where Yahweh comes to Zion. There would be the establishment of the kingdom of God and the rule of a messianic king. There would be the subjugation and or the gathering and or the obedience of the nations, the Gentiles, There'd be a new temple that would be built. There'd be the outpouring of the Spirit. There'd be a new covenant where there'd be faithful and wise obedience to the law, where people would be empowered to keep God's commands. There was a general resurrection that was expected at the end of the current age. And then, more broadly, new creation. So, for a Jew, like Saul of Tarsus, 
the two ages would have contrasted with one another. This age was characterized by Gentile rule, okay, by continuing exile, by sin and disobedience to the law and death generally. The age to come, on the other hand, would be characterized by messianic rule, righteousness, spirit, resurrection, and new creation. There'd be a radical break between the two ages, and that break is what was often called the great day of the Lord. So now, all of the characteristics of the age to come that, we've, that I've just listed out, all of those, are, they play a really significant role in the New Testament in the early church's understanding of itself. And we don't have time to address all of those today, but you can pay attention for them as you read through the New Testament and see how many of those things become themes in the church's understanding of who it was and what it was doing, what God had done, done among them. But what I do want to do is take a brief, closer look at the two that I mentioned, bracket Eastertide, uh, the two that are the supreme sign of the eschaton, resurrection and spirit. So if we look at the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks through Ezekiel, and he says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. So that's one example of eschatological expectation in the role the spirit played. God would put his spirit in his people. You get a similar example in Joel 2. It says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old, old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will so, show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And these expectations continue past the Old Testament and they develop in the intertestamental period. So one example of a document from that time that helps us to understand Jewish understanding of the time is, that, is called the Testament of Levi. And you see similar things there. It says, he will open the gates of paradise and will place the threatening sword against Adam and he will give the saints to eat from the tree of life and the spirit of holiness will be on them. And Belial will be bound by him, and he will give authority to his children to trample on the evil spirits. And the Lord will rejoice in his children, and the Lord will be pleased in his beloved ones for eternity. So Jewish people expected the outpouring of the Spirit to characterize the age to come. Now, as far as resurrection is concerned, there's actually only one explicit reference to resurrection in the Old Testament itself. That's found in Daniel 12. And it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Like I said, that's the only time it's explicitly referenced in the Old Testament, but the expectation did develop so that by the time you get to the Gospel of John, after Lazarus has died and Jesus goes to his sisters, he tells, he tells them, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So there was this understanding that a general resurrection was coming at the last day. Similarly, in another intertestamental work of two Maccabees, there's, a, there's this episode where um, seven Jewish brothers are being martyred for their faith for refusing to break the Jewish law by Antiochus Epiphanes. And they essentially um, just spurn his attempts to, to cause them to break the law. And they say, they say, you accursed fiend, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws. So resurrection and spirit. These two things belong in the age to come, at the end of the present age. Saul of Tarsus would have thought that Christians were heretics because they proclaimed that a crucified man was the Jewish Messiah. And as far as he was concerned, someone who had been crucified, hung on a tree as he put it, in reference to Deuteronomy, was under God's curse. But then, something changed that. Saul of Tarsus encountered the resurrected Christ. And if Jesus had not just been crucified but raised, then Paul must have somehow been wrong about him. There was something wrong in his understanding. God had vindicated Jesus when he raised him from the dead and declared him to be the Son of God with power. Now, similarly, if the resurrection had occurred with Jesus, then Paul's eschatology had to be reworked as well. The understanding of the two ages and how they fit together would have to be reworked. The incredible surprise of the events that bound Eastertide of resurrection and spirit is that those things belong to the future. They belong to the age to come. And they had somehow been pulled back into the present, into the present age and what had happened there. So this understanding that the end of the age has come upon us, essentially, is all over the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In Hebrews 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In 1 Peter 1, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. In 1 John, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. So this is how Jewish eschatology had been reworked in light of the Eastertide realities of resurrection and spirit. So Sam, you can help me out here. It begins with these two ages separated by the great day of the Lord, but then at the advent of the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit, the two ages come to overlap. So now rather than one single disconnect between the two, you've got this overlap period that begins with Christ's resurrection and Pentecost, and it continues on until Christ's return 
final resurrection, what we call the consummation. The way that this transformed eschatology is referred to is with terminology like the overlap of the ages. The age to come, which is, was expected to be future, has come back into the present. So now the present age and the age to come overlap. There's an overlap of the ages. It's also referred to as inaugurated eschatology because that future age, the age to come, has been inaugurated. It's been begun. It's been initiated by the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. The result is that we live between the times. We live caught in the tension between these two ages. As, as we, as those who are baptized into Christ, and we've been united to him in his death and resurrection, which is, that's what baptism is all about, right? Since we've been raised with Christ, as Paul puts it, we belong to the age to come that Christ has ushered in. What I try to tell people whenever I see them baptized, if I'm able, is welcome to new creation. And that greeting has everything to do with what we're talking about here. When we are baptized into Christ, we enter into the age to come, into the new creation that Jesus has begun. However, and against previous expectations, the present evil age, although it is passing away, still persists. The age to come, although it has been begun, has not yet come in its fullness. So as the expression goes, it's both now and not yet. You've probably heard that kind of language at some point. The age to come is both now and not yet. And one of the major implications of this new eschatology is, is that we live in this eschatological tension. Okay? Living between the times involves being caught between the drag of this present age and the lift of the age to come, which has begun in, in the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. If, if we live as though the age to come is only not yet, we call that an underrealized eschatology. We don't recognize that the age to come really has begun, and as a result, we might doubt that a genuine transformation of character is possible. We might doubt that God really can make us into new people who live different kinds of lives as God brings that about through his spirit in us. We might doubt that any kind of healings or gifts of the age to come might be available to us when, in fact, they sometimes erupt graciously into the present. We might not have the kind of confidence that we should that when we live according to the values of the kingdom of God, of the age to come, that sometimes evil and oppression really can be overcome in concrete ways in the world. So the age to come is, is not only future. It has been begun. And because of that, the world is different. This has already been said this morning. On the other hand, okay, if we live as though the age to come is only now, in other words, it's come fully, then we might mistakenly act as though various temptations out there don't pose a very real threat to us. We might presume that all blessings and all healings are available to us and assume that sickness or poverty are due to something like a lack of faith. We might see weakness or suffering 
or failure is some kind of flaw. Okay, that's what we call an overrealized eschatology, as if the age to come is only now, and there's no not yet aspects of it left. It's necessary to recognize and to live in the tensions of our eschatological existence in Christ. Okay? So having said that, the age to come does have a kind of priority for understanding who we are, for understanding where we belong. In the vast majority of English translations of Romans 12, 2, it says something like, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the word that's translated as world there is not what's typically the case, the word cosmos in Greek. It's actually the word aeon, okay, age. It's the exact language of this age versus the age to come. Do not be conformed to this age. We are to be conformed to the age that's coming, that we have entered into in Christ. So even though that we deal with the drag of this age, of the Olam Hazeh, as those who have been raised with Christ, we are members of and we belong to the age to come, the Olam Haba. Resurrection and spirit, which bound Eastertide, serve as the two first fruits, all right? The two deposits the two foretastes, the two guarantees of this new creation, of the age to come. The resurrection of Jesus is the critical historical event of new creation, of the age to come. The indwelling presence of the Spirit is the continually experienced reality of the age to come, of new creation. Those things promise us that what has begun is coming in its fullness. So I opened with a story that Gordon Fee tells, and I'm going to close with a few of his words on this. He said, the early believers, therefore, saw themselves as a truly eschatological people who lived between the times, that is, between the time of the beginning of the end and the consummation of the end. At the Lord's table, they celebrated their eschatological existence by proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26. Already they knew God's free and full forgiveness, but they had not yet been perfected. Already death was theirs, 1 Corinthians 3:22, and yet they would still die, Philippians 3:20-22. Already they lived in the spirit yet they still lived in the world where Satan could attack. Already they had been justified and faced no condemnation, yet there was still to be a future judgment. They were God's future people. They had been conditioned by the future. They knew its benefits. They lived in light of its values, but they still had to live out those benefits and values in the present world. So my hope is that this would set the stage, this, this eschatological understanding of who we are, of what God has begun in Christ and in the Spirit, that that would be shaped in us in this wild 50-day feast of Eastertide. That we would learn more how to live like we are from the future. So let me close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for what you have done in Christ and the Spirit. 
Thank you for the new creation that you have brought about among us, your people. We pray that that process would accelerate. We pray that we would live in those values as you shape us more into your people and send us out into the world. Amen.